You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 15th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up on today's programme, China reports its fastest industrial expansion in nearly two years, but retail sales growth misses estimates. We'll unpack the figures. South Korea warns of a potential North Korean missile launch this month, plus a report on Hungary's new laws to curb foreign influence. There was some discussion about how far will they go, so they want to abolish the the special persecutor's office, but just the way how this is done is quite brutal, and I mean, people are angry. We'll join Andrew Muller for his wry look back at the week. We learned that the season of peace on earth and goodwill to all and so forth was instead occasioning a goodly deal of seething. And the latest headlines from the world of business and fashion. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Vincent McAvinney. China has reported its industrial output has expanded at the fastest pace since February 2022, though retail sales growth missed expectations, pointing to a patchy recovery in the world's second largest economy. To unpack this further, Victoria Scholar, head of investment at the British stockbroker Interactive Investor, joins me now. Victoria, tell us about this industrial output figure first. What does it reveal? Well, we saw a significant bounce back in industrial activity, an increase of 6.6% in November, hitting a 21-month high, uh, improving from the previous month and beating analyst expectations. Uh, We saw improvements in mining, uh, manufacturing and utilities. Now, part of the reason why this figure was particularly strong is because the year-on-year comparison uh, flatters this November reading. So um, last year in November, remember China was still in lockdown. It was at the end of its three-year zero tolerance to COVID policy. Uh, Nonetheless, this is a slight improvement from what we've seen in recent figures. And what do the retail sales figures show? Why did they miss expectations? Well, it's interesting because they're still pretty strong, a growth of 10.1% year on year, um, ahead of uh, the prior month, a jump from 7.6% in the previous month. But like you say, it was a bit less than analysts were expecting. We have been seeing uh, retail improve in recent months. We've seen 11 straight months of growth. Um, The best month uh, this month since uh, March because of strong sales of clothing, communications, uh, cars and uh, jewellery as well. But it's certainly been a bumpy recovery out of the pandemic. Uh, We were expecting this huge surge in pent-up demand like we saw in the US and Europe and uh, in the UK. Um, But that wasn't necessarily the case for the world's second largest economy, uh, which has really been struggling this year with uh, woes in its property sector and a deflationary problem too. Mm, And just some of the stuff that you mentioned, there. I mean, there was a huge demand, obviously, for electronics and gadgets in the pandemic. That's uh, that's the sales of those have fallen away somewhat since then. People uh, in other nations that have come out of the pandemic spending more on experiences, on travel. Are we seeing anything like that? Is that perhaps why the retail sales are down in China? 
Yeah, absolutely. That has been a key theme. You know, we've seen a huge dependence on technology uh, during COVID and that has eased as COVID restrictions um, were removed. Um, and like you say, uh, those experiences have done really well. We've seen like Disney uh, theme parks, for example, in Shanghai have uh, been performing pretty well since COVID. So uh, there is a real sense of people wanting to get back to enjoying their normal lives again uh, because China's lockdown went on a lot longer uh, than most countries around the world. And what does it mean for thinking of particularly Western fashion houses, the likes of Kering and LVMH and Burberry and all those companies that, you know, really their their profit growth now is driven in China. Uh, if we're seeing a slowdown in consumer confidence there, in part, as you say, because of the real estate crisis that's really gripping, particularly younger people that might be buying that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's really interesting because the luxury sector was um, very much on trend at the start of the year with China emerging from its COVID restrictions. There was expected to be this uh, huge bounce in demand at the likes of LVMH, Richmond, Burberry, uh, Hermes, some of the other fashion houses too. And we saw this major bounce at the beginning of the year. But since the summer, it feels as though that's uh, post-COVID pent-up demand is starting to fade, um, particularly when you think about China's uh, weak economic backdrop. Uh, so LVMH, for example, was France's most valuable company. It's been overtaken now. Uh, Europe's most valuable company, in fact, has been overtaken now by Nova Nordisk, um, a uh, a company that has a very popular uh, weight loss Zempic, uh, drug. Yes, that's yeah. the one, exactly. Uh, the injectable that's been talked about a lot this year. Um, so we can even see Oprah that Winfrey seemingly this week uh, getting on board <laughs> with that. Yeah, uh, and just finally, very briefly, uh, employment they unemployment they claim is holding at five uh, percent. But I mean, how much can we trust that figure? Given we know youth employment is a real problem, with them telling the likes of university graduates to lower their expectations of careers, they're actually running programs to move younger people out of cities into the countryside to try and rejuvenate and guide, uh, you know, countries on on their farming and exporting goods from there. I mean, is this going to be, do you think, an emerging problem that we see a lot more of this youth unemployment and maybe the figures aren't portraying that accurately? Well, actually, the officials have stopped publishing the youth unemployment figures because they were so high. Um, so we do have to take China's economic figures with a pinch of salt. Um, they're not entirely reliable, um, but there's that China is facing an issue in its labour markets, trying to get more and more people back into work, uh, particularly younger people coming out of schools and universities. Victoria Scholar, thank you. Now here's Tom Webb with today's other news headlines. Thanks, Vincent. European leaders were unable to agree on a 50 billion euro aid package for Ukraine after Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban blocked it, sending the debate into early next year as the bloc struggles to counter concerns that Western support is faltering. There was an agreement to open accession talks with Kyiv, taking a definitive step towards Ukraine's integration into the European project by bypassing Moscow's closest ally in the bloc, Viktor Orban. Orban. Chinese authorities have cut down traffic flows on highways in several provinces after vehicles collided on icy patches as temperatures plummeted to below freezing point across most of the country. Temperatures in some northern parts of China will drop as low as minus 40 Celsius, according to forecasts from China's National Meteorological Centre. 
And cannabis smokers in two Dutch cities will be able to light up legally for the first time today as authorities roll out a trial decriminalizing the production and supply of weed. The consumption of small quantities of cannabis in the Netherlands is technically illegal, but police choose not to enforce the law as part of a so-called tolerance policy in place since the 1970s. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Vincent. Thanks, Tom. In South Korea, the Presidential National Security Office's first deputy chief says North Korea might launch another intercontinental ballistic missile before the end of the year, as he arrived in Washington to attend a nuclear consultative group. North Korea's launch of a spy satellite in November also raised speculation that the success could help North Korea's nuclear warhead delivery capabilities. John Lee, editor of Korea Pro, joins me now from Seoul. John, uh, what have people in South Korea been making of this news? The fact that the North Koreans could potentially be launching a missile um, by the end of this month has raised some concerns among the security uh, environment here in South Korea. Um, there's this there's this fear that if they succeed with this missile, then it could especially uh, antagonize the U.S. because the ICBM, the Intercontinental Ballistic Missile, is a long-range missile that would affect the U.S. much more than South Korea. And in terms of reaction, I mean, North Korea already heavily sanctioned. It does seem to manage to get away uh, with getting ways around those sanctions. There's also reports recently that they've made huge money from stealing things like Bitcoin. Uh, What more could the West and other powers do in response to them launching this missile potentially? Unfortunately, the short answer is not that much. Uh, Even if the U.S. and South Korea wanted to impose more sanctions on North Korea, um, right now, uh, the UNSC, the United Nations Security Council, is in that sort of gridlock where China and Russia and the U.S. are vetoing each other's um, uh, resolutions. And so further sanctions on North Korea at the moment is a no-go. The only thing that the South Koreans and the U.S. can really do is to increase uh, their deterrence capabilities. Now, of course, they are also extending their um, diplomatic uh, reach to the North Koreans as well. But uh, as far as Pyongyang is concerned, they are not interested in any uh, negotiated offer from Washington or Seoul at the moment because they feel that any sort of negotiations will still uh, be based on this demand that the North Koreans denuclearize. And as far as Pyongyang is concerned, they are not going to do that. And will we be able to ascertain from this test launch if the ICBM is capable of directly targeting the U.S. continental mainland? Well, there have been speculation since uh, the early 2000s, at least, that they have already been um, building toward that uh, eventual goal. And they have launched ICBM tests before. Uh, now, whether or not they ha- can miniaturize the nuclear warheads and put it on the warheads, some experts suggest that they uh, they already can do that. But um, it's highly doubtful that they'll actually conduct an actual nuclear test. And I believe that might be uh, a step too far, even for Pyongyang. But just an ICBM test to show that they are capable of it, that's the message that they want to send. And we'll remember the pictures of Kim Jong-un travelling by train for many days a few weeks ago to Russia, meeting President Vladimir Putin at that uh, space operations base, talking about technology transfers. I mean, has there been any word on what North Korea has been able to actually get out of Russia yet in exchange for those weapons that Russia needed in Ukraine? 
Washington has uh, asserted several times now that there have been trade, uh, weapons trade, and there have been some technology transfers, but there has not been any concrete evidence as to whether that has actually happened. Um, yes, there have been some North Korean ammunition found in the Ukraine war, but whether or not that ammunition actually came from North Korea or through a third party that was that had already purchased these weapons pri- uh, previously, that's an open question still. Um, but it's not implausible that there was some cooperation, but we're not exactly sure yet what that cooperation has been so far. John Lee, editor of Korea Pro, thank you. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban may have been in the news over his blocking of EU aid for Ukraine, but back home in Budapest, his government has been hard at work too. Earlier this week, the Hungarian parliament approved the creation of a special government office to investigate foreign influence in the country, while in neighbouring Slovakia, newly elected Prime Minister Robert Fisto wants to get rid of an institution that probes high-level corruption and organised crime. What is happening to these two core Central European countries? Monocle's Alexei Korolov investigates. Robert Fitzo has only been in the job for a month and a half, but already many Slovaks want him gone. Right now they are shouting uh, Fitzo to the jail, Fitzo to the jail. Uh-huh. Across the country, thousands of people have taken to the streets this week to protest against what they see as an erosion of democracy by the Prime Minister and his ruling smear party. I am Peter Osuski, former a member of parliament, now a retired man on the street. And uh, due to the fact that I entered the policy 25 years ago and spent five periods in parliament, I know something about the democracy, about the fight for it. So we have to resist. The protests, including this one in the capital Bratislava, were co-organized by the liberal Progressive Slovakia Party. There was some discussion about how far will they go, so they want to abolish the the special persecutor's office, but just the way how this is done is quite brutal, and I mean, people are angry, so we have a full square here, and also at the same time there are uh, protests in six or seven other cities so across Slovakia. Really across the country. Yeah, wow. yeah. Martin Dubitsi is the leader of Progressive Slovakia's parliamentary group. So, you know, you're saying people are angry, people are surprised, but you, you know, with the inside knowledge, being in Parliament, knowing Smer and knowing Pizza, were you surprised that he's doing this? I'm not really surprised because himself personally is quite motivated by, I would say, personal vengeance because they, you know, they've been persecuted in the last uh, three years. They've been, some major figures were put in front of courts of justice, so he was really annoyed by that. So he, he personally is really pushing this through. But on the other hand, I mean, it was proposed in the parliament, but uh, we don't know when it will be discussed. Uh, the state budget should be discussed as well. So it's, it's actually quite confusing and it doesn't seem like, apart from his personal strong will that he wants to get this through, I don't see a clear political strategy on how, how this will happen. But while Robert Fitzo's plans in Slovakia may yet come to nothing, in neighbouring Hungary, things are moving fast. On Tuesday, the Hungarian parliament passed legislation to set up the so-called Sovereignty Protection Office. The government insists that its aim is to shield Hungarian voters from foreign interference. 
but human rights organizations such as the Hungarian Helsinki Committee say that it's part of Prime Minister Viktor Orban's long-standing strategy to silence all dissent in the country. So my name is Marta Pradavi. I'm the co-chair of the Hungarian Helsinki Committee. It is a legislation that I, as a lawyer, I hesitate to call law because it really lacks the criteria that a, a real piece of, of law should have. It is extremely vague, it's very unclear, and it is meant to send out a very clear, chilling message. The targets or the potential targets of this new sovereignty defense bill in Hungary are very wide, and people are already guessing whether they or their organization could become a target. And I think it's intended this way. So it goes beyond civil society for sure. It can very, very easily cover media outlets. It can cover individual citizens. It can cover companies. It doesn't only cover things that are happening in Hungary. So it has a sort of a global remit too. This is also why it's, it's, it lacks legal certainty. What it does have, however, is, a, is an intention to emit a chilling message for anybody basically participating in public debates in Hungary. For many critics of Viktor Orban, Hungary is something of a lost cause, a nation that has strayed too far from the EU's democratic principles. But at the demonstration in Bratislava, many protesters were still hopeful that they could stop their country from following in its footsteps. Last word to former Slovak MP Peter Osuski. We are in democracy. There is no reason to be afraid. It's simple our duty. We should keep in mind heroic fighting Ukraine. And we shouldn't be ashamed by sitting at home. For Monocle, I'm Alexei Korolov. Alexei Korolov reporting there. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Well, it's Friday, which means it's time to get Andrew Muller's take on what we've learned this week. We learned this week that quite contrary to the confident assertion of luxuriantly sideburned Wolverhamptonian hitmakers Slade, everybody is not having fun. We learned indeed that Christmas appears to be making quite a lot of people extremely angry. And not just that guy. We learned that the season of peace on earth and goodwill to all and so forth was instead occasioning a goodly deal of seething. We learned that the targets of this rage, the CDs, if you will, were large British retailers, though not for the reasons which might have been expected, desired and indeed deserved, for e.g. putting Christmas decorations up in like July and berating us absolutely mercilessly with maudlin television commercials soundtracked by insufferably winsome warblers with ukuleles trilling twee versions of rock standards. She's got a smile that it seems to me Reminds me of childhood memories When everything was as bright as the bluest sky 
would be an awful, awful shame if they were crushed to death by a grand piano falling out of an overflying cargo aircraft. That's showbiz. We learned instead that people who were angry about the Middle East, which is, to be clear, not necessarily an unreasonable thing to be angry about in and of itself, were taking this out on certain of the UK's high street institutions. We had indeed already learned to be braced for this eventuality and we'll need that swirling mists of time sound effect we use for filling in the backstory. Back in October, October we ask you, Marks and Spencer had floated a semi-ironic have-cake-eat-cake Christmas campaign, riffing on the very fact that some people are annoyed to the edge of their endurance by Christmas, a fury perhaps not assuaged by organisations like Marks and Spencer flogging Christmas in goddamn octo-actual burr. Their ad depicted festive paper hats flung into a fireplace, which prompted opprobrium from two quarters. One, weirdos who thought it somehow blasphemous. Two, weirdos who thought that the green and red colours of the blazing hats were some sort of slight upon Palestine. To both sets of weirdos, Marks and Spencer apologised. Anyway, we learned that, and inevitably, following Marks and Spencer's abject capitulation, there was going to be more where that came from. Oh no. We learned that angry online mobs had descended upon Zara over a Christmas ad campaign which featured models standing in rubble. Like Christmas ad campaigns aren't shot months and months in advance, and like such is the human condition, there isn't always rubble somewhere. But... Sticking with the subject of Yuletide clothing retail initiatives in arguably questionable taste, we learned of new merch from this guy. For the first time, we're creating a real physical trump card. Purchase 47 digital cards and we'll mail you a beautiful trading card. It is an authentic piece of the suit I wore when I took that now famous mugshot. And it was a great suit. Believe me, a really good suit. We learned when we looked into it further that the grift appears to be that if you, you in this instance ideally being a credulous simpleton, which obviously rules out all our listeners, but stick with us, buy 47 digital Donald Trump cards at $99 each, you will be posted a fragment of the suit worn by the former president at one of his recent arraignments. Which is to say that once you've coughed up the thick end of five large for 47 items which do not in any meaningful sense exist, you have the word of Donald Trump that you will receive a snippet of what he was wearing for one of his higher profile disgracings of his nation's highest office. Yikes. But we learned that despite giving every appearance of being a preposterous scam designed to separate lack-witted cultists from the contents of their wallets, this is... Not that. We learned that according to no less an authority than CollectTrumpCards.com and really, would CollectTrumpCards.com lie to us? Lying to us just does not seem like a thing that CollectTrumpCards.com would do that the outfit in which Trump glowed into the camera at the Fulton County Clink is and we quote the most historically significant artefact in United States history. (laughs) 
We are yet to learn, as of this broadcast, what George Washington's sword, Abraham Lincoln's hat, Davy Crockett's rifle, Amelia Earhart's goggles, Chuck Berry's guitar, or Neil Armstrong's helmet make of this assessment, but we'll bring you updates as we get them. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Miller. Many thanks to Andrew Miller. You're back with The Briefing on Monocle Radio. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Let's get a roundup of some of the day's business stories with Ewan Potts from Bloomberg. Ewan, it's been a bumper week for markets, hasn't it? The Fed, the ECB, the Bank of England, all making rates decisions. Uh, how much has uh, Jerome Powell's uh, signalling, though, on what the US is going to do had an impact? Well, it has really been quite something. The US S&P 500 is poised for its seventh weekly gain on what they're calling the pivot party. Now, the Fed ignited really a speculative frenzy this week when it affirmed on Wednesday it's ready to declare victory on inflation and shift to rate cuts next year without, it seems, a significant cost on the economy. It's what they call the uh, soft landing scenario. It's what everybody hopes for when rates uh, rise rapidly, as they have done over the last year to 18 months but without damaging the economy seemingly, uh, but bringing inflation down. So that is what the Fed is saying it looks like has happened. Whether it will actually be the case, we're not quite sure yet. But markets are very excited this week. I'll just take you through uh, a couple of the numbers. Australia's stock market is up 3.2%. Sweden, the same. US stock market up 2.5%. The bond market is absolutely on fire. Uh, The dollar has fallen by 1.5%. Remember, the dollar uh, tends to be strong when there is bad economic news in times of uncertainty. So the dollar falling is signs of positive news. Uh, The Canadian dollar, the Swiss franc, and the euro all uh, rising strongly. So there's been a huge uh, increase in uh, appetite for risk assets this week. Investors very excited by what they heard from the US Federal Reserve on Wednesday. The uh, music out of Europe's central bankers, though, uh, rather different. They've signalled the ECB and the Bank of England, which you mentioned in the question, both signalling that they're not yet ready to join uh, the Federal Reserve in this policy pivot. Uh, my colleague Julian Harris, writing about the pivot party, described uh, Andrew Bailey and Christine Lagarde of those central banks standing grumpily in the corner, refusing to drink the punch. They've been very keen to push back uh, on there being interest rate cuts uh, in the euro area or the UK over the coming months. Uh, Lagarde, after the ECB decision yesterday, asked if her committee had been discussing rate cuts at the latest meeting. She said, we did not. We did not discuss rate cuts at all. No discussion, no debate on this issue. So absolutely clear that rate cuts are not coming uh, in the next few months uh, in the UK or in the euro area. I'm, I'm imagining that vivid picture you've painted of the Jackson Hole Christmas party and, uh, you know, Jay Powell in the middle of the room just singing along madly to Christmas tunes at this uh, pivot party. Uh, but one thing I did want to pick up on on that is, uh, to use a phrase from Bill Clinton's time on re-election, it's the economy stupid. Joe Biden's poll numbers are pretty bad. He will be feeling pretty good, though, on how the US economy is going and the market uh, is reacting to this news and if he does manage that soft landing. But to you know, borrow from Sarah Palin, there is what's happening on Wall Street and what's happening on Main Street. Whilst this is good, you know, big uh, economic news and those figures are promising, does it actually impact people still going to their day-to-day lives, uh, going about their day-to-day lives with the cost of living crisis? 
Yeah, you make a very good point. They are, of course, uh, two different things. And stocks are rocketing may add a certain feel-good factor when people are looking at their pensions and uh, wealthier Americans are looking at their stock portfolios. But for most people, it doesn't feed directly through to their experience. And of course, it has been brutal uh, with uh, inflation over the last couple of years. US inflation, though, uh, does, I don't know if I can say it's been licked, but it is certainly uh, a lot better than it was. US inflation now 3.1%. This is why the Fed uh, is looking happy because it does seem that it is under control. Uh, here in the UK, inflation is still at 4.6%. We're a little bit behind the curve on that. But inflation has been coming down in the US and GDP growth uh, is looking pretty reasonable so far. It doesn't look like the US is heading for a recession uh, imminently. The jobs market has certainly been cooling over the course of this year. Uh, it was red hot as we came out of the pandemic. There were huge uh, record numbers of vacancies and it is not the case uh, anymore. But the job market is still pretty reasonable. Unemployment has been ticking up a bit, but uh, it is certainly uh, not feeling like a recession in the US and the labour market is broadly pretty healthy. So the economic backdrop to the election next year, I think is reasonable for Joe Biden, but quite how it will look uh, in the autumn. And, you know, we are still uh, 11, 12 months away from that election. I think that is uh, difficult to call. Mm. And just briefly, there's some bad news for the owners of big cars, specifically a model favoured by footballers, flashy celebrities and drug dealers. <laughs> yeah, get, get your violins out, uh, Vincent. Yeah, problem of theft of certain fancy cars. Not something that troubles me, but uh, an interesting Bloomberg story. We quote a property investor in Yorkshire in England. He wanted to trade in his gas-guzzling sports utility vehicle for a, an electric Porsche. He was doing his bit for the environment by buying another expensive car. But uh, a, th- a string of thefts of Range Rovers in the UK has caused insurance premiums to skyrocket. Uh, whilst his Porsche was on order, he found that the cheapest quote he could get for insurance for his existing Range Rover was £48,000, something in the region of uh, $60,000. And that uh, eye-watering insurance cost has been sending the values of these uh, SUVs tumbling. You remember that car prices really rocketed uh, during the pandemic and in the wake of the pandemic. Uh, But now uh, the value of his car, according to one online website, has dropped from £75,000 just three months ago to only £45,000 now. So quite a depreciation. uh, Yeah, it is a massive uh, drop in value for these uh, very fancy cars. Mm. Ewan Potts, thank you. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Now, with the latest festive fashion news, Dana Thomas, author of Fashionopolis, The Price of Fast Fashion and the Future of Clothes, joins me now in the studio. Welcome, Dana. Lots of people listening to this might be scrambling at this point to find Christmas presents for loved ones. What's the news on the high street for them? Where should they be heading? Well, Stella McCartney has come out, has set up a really very festive corner pop-up shop at Selfridges called Celebration. And she's showing her collection. She's done a collaboration with Veuve Clicquot, the champagne. And she's got a art installation set up with Chris Levine and neon lights. And it's very festive and lots of cool things there. And it's all, of course, uh, sustainably sourced and sustainably made and made with you know, with heart and and following, you know, human rights. Stella's A1 that way, so you know you're buying 
good product and not just junk. Mm, I noticed last night Edward Enfield was tweeting out uh, or putting out the covers of January's edition of British Vogue, which yes. is all about sustainability yes. and the champions of it. One of the covers, Emma Watson, the actress. Um, and sustainability, do you think now that that is compulsory for all fashion brands? Stella McCartney's been kind of ahead of the time on this uh, for many years now and, and materials that she just simply won't use. Is that something that you think consumers now just expect to be on offer? Well, I think that they expect it, but more importantly, the brands are being forced through legislation to adapt to a more environmental and human rights laws that have been put in place, especially in the EU. So you're going to see a cleaning up of the fashion industry, which it desperately needed, because it has been pretty much unregulated forever. And, um, you know, like since the Industrial Revolution mm. more. So it's about time that there was some regulation and that that is that their carbon footprint is less in the supply chain, but also that they're paying people a living wage, for example, and making sure things are made in clean and safe factories. Stella, of course, has been doing this since forever because it was how she was raised. You know, she's the daughter of two of the most famous hippies of all time. Yeah. This is, you know, her. And this isn't just like something she's taken on. This is her the way she is. And I think she's a great flag bearer in the in the area and we need more brands to get on board and they are and she's at lvmh she is pushing lvmh in that direction Mm. and going to new york now the macy's sale oh the macy's sale so sad but we all saw it coming uh there's a couple of private equity firms and and investors who have been put in a bid for 21 dollars a share Macy says they're going to try to fight for more, $24 a share. But still, it's it looks like Macy's is going to change hands and it's going to go into out of um, go into private equity or in finance and investment ownership. And, you know, they're buying it for the real estate. The The retail end has been really sad for a long time. If anyone's walked into a Macy's, they know that it's kind of a sad experience these days. Mm. They, they never really got um, their online. They came late to online. But it, it has not been well managed. Let's just yeah. Put it I was that in way. a store earlier it's, in the year, and it was all the a bit it, drab. And even the flagship in New York, I was in last sad. year, and it just felt outdated compared to outdated. what European kind of shoppers are more used and, to now. You know, it, it's interesting because I knew that Macy's was done for when I heard, I read that, and it's been a couple of years. It may have even been before COVID. They had managed to convince the city for air rights over that downtown mm-hmm. Herald Square building, which means you could build a tower on top. And so that's what they were doing is that they were shifting away the value of the company and the way they make money in the company from retail and into real estate. And now you have real estate prospectors coming in and saying, we want the real estate. Because some of those buildings are, you know, fantastic. The Bloomingdale's up on Lexington Boulevard Mm. or Avenue. It's an amazing building. They've got hundreds and hundreds of stores and malls, parking lots Mm -hmm. around the world. Parking lots are valuable. And I mean, you know, not far from where we are now, less than a mile, there were three department stores a few Christmas ago, department store chains in the UK, for instance, you had Debenhams, you had um, John, Lewis. John Lewis, which is still around, and you had Fraser. Now, House of Fraser's is gone, Debenhams is gone, right. uh, John Lewis is the only one standing, you've got Selfridges as well, but that's a kind of one-off store. Do you think around the world, the department store's days are really numbered now? Absolutely. Already the malls have been closing and and being turned into other uses for years. At one point, we heard that Amazon was looking to buy the Saks Fifth Avenue store to make that their 
East Coast headquarters. And then that fell through. And then there was talk, I think, even that Apple was going to. And then that this was the latest thing, that Saks Fifth Avenue was going to put a casino on the top floor, which again shows you that they're moving away from retail and trying to just figure out how to Experience. make money yeah. in other ways. Yeah. Because in the end, the value of those companies after all these years, is the real estate. Lord and Taylor became a WeWork, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> it's, um, and then WeWork went under, but that's another story. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's, they, they, they were built on full city blocks, spectacular buildings, and now those buildings can be repurposed in other ways, be mm. it condominiums, hotels, casinos. Yeah, very sad when that happens. I think And, in, air, in, and know, air rights. I, air I rights don't wonder if course. also, yeah. that's why... And many, I think of Jenner's in Edinburgh, which is a fantastic, beautiful department store on the main kind of high street there. That's being turned into a hotel. Yeah, they did have those great sort of 1920s, 30s and buildings. And the beautiful one in, in L.A. was has become the LACMA muse, you know, museum. So mm. there are ways to repurpose this very important and beautiful architecture, but mm. also monumental real estate. But these companies are being bought for the real estate. They're not mm. being bought because they're selling. They're doing great retail business. And just finally, something back to something you're very interested in. I was really taken by I was, when I was looking a bit about your book earlier. Um, one in six people in the world are involved in mm. in the clothing industry. Hundred billion garments a year made. I mean, just an absolutely massive impact. Yeah, on I mean the that one in six goes from like the cotton farmer exactly, to all the way through to, the chain to, to Naomi Campbell. To, exactly. Yeah, to <laughs> Naomi Campbell to the person in the store selling it. But I mean that is absolutely huge. It's um, huge. But uh, COP, obviously, uh, you know, lots of people talking about the, you know, f- uh, fossil fuels, but Stepping was there any news on fashion? Fuels. Well, the, that's where the impact, that will be really interesting if it really does happen in two regards. First is the powering of factories that make your clothes because most of them are still in far-flung lands with not much uh, regulation and they are coal-powered. So stepping away from fossil fuels means re- rethinking, rebuilding, reorganizing the supply chain and factories so it's solar, wind power, whatever kind of power, but not coal. And maybe nuclear, but not coal. Mm-hmm. And then the other impact is um, petroleum because most of your synthetic fabrics today are petroleum-based, nylon and polyester and neoprene when you have, you know, when you go in cold water scuba diving, that's all petroleum-based and it's not recyclable. It's basically plastic. Two-thirds of our clothes today contain polyester-based or petroleum-based fabrics. So without the fossil fuels, they're going to have to rethink the fabric industry, be it recycling what we already have or coming up with alternatives or going back to old-fashioned natural fibers that we've been wearing since, you know, the dawn of time. Mm. Well, Dana Thomas, thank you very much. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Tom Webb and our researcher was Naomi Ekwe and our studio manager was Steph Chungu. The Briefing is back on Monday at the same time. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Goodbye and thank you for listening. (laughs) 